All right. You can open your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 7. We will look at, not chapter 7, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 is what we will look for. In the Pew Bible, um, I think it's found on page 1023. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love... Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today um, with the opportunity to look at your word and what an opportunity it is. Your word is inerrant, it is inspired, and your word is what your people need to hear. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to think through these things that John has said, uh, help us to understand them, help me, Lord, as I uh, feebly attempt to uh, communicate. I pray that those who are hearing would have open ears and that you would Uh, Just cause your word to uh, do wondrous things. Uh, We thank you again for this time, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has said to his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in John's epistle here, uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Further, he writes in chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And these are just a, a few of the many verses scattered throughout the New Testament and the Scripture as a whole that talk clearly and plainly about the brethren and the love that they will have for one another. It is the clear teaching of the New Testament that God's people, and that's us, will be marked by a love for all people and for the brethren specifically. It's a non-negotiable. The New Testament would even be so bold to talk about the love by which we are to be marked as to say that anyone who has been born again will be marked by love. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was even so demanding as to instruct His followers 
in chapter 5 of uh, uh, verse 44 in Matthew by saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. So it's the clear teaching from the New Testament that God's people, those who have been born again, those who have the Spirit of God residing in them, will be marked, will be clearly seen as those who are filled with love. And yet it seems that we see that so little in the church today. All too often we see churches split, sometimes over trivial things, ridiculous things, things that we can't imagine that churches would split over. All too often we see relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ fissured and fractured over things that seem odd. All too often we see pastors abusing congregations And even probably more often, congregations abusing pastors. We see fractions and factions and cliques. We see exclusions and other unhealthy scenarios that seem to play out in America's churches over and over again on a daily basis. So how does that square with Scripture? How does that square with the plain teaching of these verses that we've read, this text in front of us, and the whole counsel of God's Word? If we as Christ's followers are to be marked by love, how does that square with what we see on a regular basis? What would that love even look like? What, in fact, if there are fellow Christians with which we have to do that we don't have uh, that much in common with? What if there are other Christians that we don't have great affection for? What if there are other Christians in in our day-to-day lives who have hurt us? Who've been rude, who've been unkind that we just don't gel with, that we just don't jive with? How do we square that with Scripture's teaching that we're to be marked by love for the brethren? Well, in today's passage, John is going to help us to understand how all of this is supposed to fit together. Today in this passage, I want us to consider what this love would look like this love that we're to have for one another, this love that is supposed to be so clear that the world would know us by the love that we have for one another. So there's a great opportunity in this text that John has given us under the direction of the Holy Spirit today to have some of those questions answered. And I don't know about anybody else, but for a long time I struggled with that. How am I to be marked by a love for God's people when there are people that have hurt me so? There are people that I just don't connect with. There are people that I just don't really like that much. Sure, there are going to be the people that when you show up to church on Sunday morning, you just love to talk to those people. and You're on the same page. You're in the same season of life. You have so much in common. But what about those with which you don't? What about those with which it's not the case? 
that you have that connection. John's going to help us with that today. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this text with really just two main headings, and we'll use verse 11 of First uh, John 4 as kind of our umbrella and kind of our outline for this sermon. Verse 11, let me read it again, says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we'll have two kind of main headings as we look at this text. We want to look at this passage and see what this love is and how it would look on a day-to-day basis as we walk together and follow Christ. But before we get into the outline this morning, I wanted to take one quick look at the author of this epistle. According to scholars, which I am not, the internal, external, historical evidence for this epistle all points to the authorship of the Apostle John. The original John, one of the original 12 disciples that followed Jesus those three years that he ministered here on this earth. And what I thought was interesting as I started studying this passage is that word that he uses to lead off this passage, that word, beloved. Now it's not hard to figure out, and it's not great sleuth work on my part, to realize that that word beloved is directly connected to the word that's going to be so prominent in this passage, that word love. In other words, what we notice in this passage is the one that's writing about the love that we're to have for one another is one who first lived out that love that we're to have for one another. He is an example of that love that we are to have for one another. But what's interesting is that while John uses that word beloved throughout this epistle, and while John addresses these people as my little children and other terms of endearment, it would probably be fair to say that John wasn't always known to be marked by this kind of love. In his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, John MacArthur writes about the Apostle John, So it is clear from the Gospel accounts that John was capable of behaving in the most sectarian, narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, and impetuous fashion. He was volatile. He was brash. He was aggressive. He was passionate, zealous, and personally ambitious, just like his brother James. They were cut from the same bolt of cloth, but John aged well. And I want you to grab on to that and think about that as we go through this text. But John aged well. Under the control of the Holy Spirit, MacArthur writes, all his liabilities were exchanged for assets. Compare the young disciple with the aged patriarch, and you'll see that as he matured, his areas of greatest weakness all developed into his greatest strengths. He's an amazing example of what should happen to us as we grow in Christ, allowing the Lord's strength to be made perfect in our weakness. Now let me make two quick points of application having to do with John the Apostle and his use of this word beloved to lead off this text. 
First, our sanctification is progressive. I don't want anybody to walk away from this sermon totally beat down, totally discouraged by what they may see as a lack of love in their lives. Instead, where we need to repent, we need to repent. Where we are off course, we are off course. But make no mistake about us, we are all works in progress. We are all following Christ. And the love that He's talking about here will be imperfect in us while we are here on this earth. Our sanctification, like John's, is progressive. So while there was a time where John would be known as a maybe a little bit brash, maybe a little bit arrogant, for sure self-serving, he aged well. And now, later in his life, he addresses his hearers with the term of endearment, Beloved. I want to encourage you to age well. I want to encourage you to grow in your walk with the Lord. These things will never be perfected in us on this earth, but may we strive as God's people to age well. Second note of application, or second word of application, regarding this use of John uh, with the word beloved. When it comes time for Rockport Baptist Church to put forth men who would take on the role of elder, and that seems to be a direction that the church is moving, I want to encourage you guys to be well-versed in the qualifications that the New Testament makes on the role of elder. They are clearly laid out. They are clearly prescribed. And I want to also encourage you to look for men who would be marked with this kind of love and concern and care and genuine desire for the well-being of God's people that John is marked by in this epistle. There are plenty of people taking roles for self-serving purposes. There are plenty of people looking for titles. There are plenty of people looking for platforms. You find men who are genuinely concerned for the well-being of God's people. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology describes the kind of love about which we will talk today as self-giving for the benefit of others. I want to encourage you to have that stick in your mind this morning. Self-giving for the benefit of others. Are the men that would serve this church marked by self-service or are they marked by self-giving for the benefit of others? Are they seeking a position of authority or do they genuinely care about the well-being and the prosperity of God's people? That's something that's critical. So if you remember from John chapter 21, verse 15 and following, Jesus reinstates Peter after Peter has denied him three times. 
And speaking to Peter and referring to him as Simon, Jesus says in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That love there is the same word that we'll be looking at today. And when Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Find yourself men who aren't looking for status, who aren't looking for pull, who aren't looking for sway, who aren't looking for pay necessarily. Find yourselves men who are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, looking to feed Christ's lambs. Find yourself shepherds whose goal and desire is not that people would look at them, but they would be a self-giving benefit to other people. That aside, let's get into the meat of this text this morning, and let's think together first about the pattern of love that we are to follow. How does this all play out? How does this look on a day-to-day Walking along the way basis, what is the pattern that we are to follow if John says, Beloved, we're to love one another, how is it that that plays out? How do we love one another? What even does that mean? How do I love those who have hurt me? How do I love those that I find abrasive? How do I love those extra grace required people? How do I do this? The primary thing that we need to see here this morning is that the example John gives us, the pattern we are to follow in seeking to love one another is the love that God has shown to His people. Now the word used here for love is a verb that is a form of that familiar word agape that we've probably heard over the years, talked about, maybe misdefined, maybe defined, And what's critical at the outset of this, as we seek to figure out how to love one another, is that we're able to compare and contrast this agape love about which John is talking with the kind of love with which we are so prone to think in our culture today. There's a contrast here between this agape love which comes from God and the kind of love which we as finite sinners tend to think about that's important to be able to distinguish between if we're to understand how this works. Because if we just think about loving one another in kind of the way that we think about love in our culture and huggy bear, kissy face and all that kind of stuff, then we are... We are sure to go wrong. On the other hand, if we can understand this kind of love from the perspective of agape love, then we can be on to something. Think then with me first about how our modern culture tends to think about love. And as I describe these two kinds of love, I want you to think first about this human, sinful kind of love that we are familiar with. 
And as we describe agape love, think about the character and the attributes of God. I would just encourage you to spend your life on this earth looking intently upon the character and attributes of God. It will fill in all of the blanks. The difference we are talking about here is the difference between a human, finite, emotional, ebb and flow kind of love that we are so used to and the love of God. So, we tend to think of love in kind of an emotional way. Something that can kind of do this kind of thing. An ebbing and a flowing kind of love. We tend to love those things which bring us joy. We tend to love those things or those people which love us in return. We tend to love those things or those people to which we are drawn. Those things or people that we have determined have merited our love and can bring some kind of fulfillment to our lives. So for us, too often, loving things or people really just ends up flowing out of our love for ourselves. So that our our love for each other and other things tends to just flow out of this kind of idolatrous self-love, self-worship thing that we are so prone to fall into. Often in our day, we hear about men and women whose marriages are collapsing and we often hear them saying things like, We just don't love each other anymore. So this is where we get tripped up. This is where we get confused. This is where we get lost. And we read in a text like this in verse 7 and 8 where it says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Very matter of fact. And we can look at that and we can think to ourselves, Am I even a Christian? Because there's, there's so many true believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that I, they, they've hurt me. They've been rude. I don't even particularly like them. And yet I'm to be marked by this love for them. So while, while there are the people at church that we all, we just gravitate to, we just, we love those people, we... We have so much in common. It's just a joy. It's, just, it's great to talk to those people. What about the, the people for which that's not the case? How am I supposed to deal with those people? How am I supposed to love those people? See, if we think about love from the perspective of our human love, the way that we tend to live our lives, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. It's why church splits happen. It's why pastoral abuse happens. It's why congregations abusing pastors happens. It's why you can have relationships between people and they sit on other sides of the room but they haven't spoken in years. So this is, this is critical. This is, this is important to understand the difference between that kind of love and, and this agape love that John speaks about in this text. 
Because this agape love that he speaks about, what we find out as we investigate a little bit, is that this love is tied directly to the character of God. That this kind of love comes to us as we are born again and the Spirit comes to reside in us and begins to bear fruit for God's love. And then we begin to reflect this kind of love. This is why John says, love is from God. This kind of love comes only to believers and can only be produced as a work of the Holy Spirit. From God. Notice also that John says in this text, God is love. So that the love that we're talking about is a is a very aspect or a part of who God is. It's a characteristic of God. It is not right to just say God does loving things. It is God is love. Agape love, in contrast to what we talked about before, is a love of the will, not a love of the emotions. It is a love that is dependent on the one who loves, not the one who is loved. It is a love that cannot be revoked. It is unchanging no matter the circumstance. And as the Spirit resides in us, He produces this Love that as we walk along the way should more and more emanate from us. So, having seen that distinction between our frail love and this agape love, let's consider the most vivid picturesque demonstration of that love that John refers us to in order that we would better understand how to love one another. Namely, the work of Christ and God sending us, sending Him here to perform that work. Verses 10 and 11 need to be in your memory bank. Parents, Verses 10 and 11 need to be in your kid's memory bank. That they might come to follow Christ. And that if they leave your home without Christ, let it be our prayer that verses like verses 10 and 11 of 1 John chapter 4 haunt them until they come to Christ. This is the most vivid, picturesque demonstration of the love of God that there is. These are foundational verses. These are instructive verses. How do we love one another, brothers? Look at verses 10 and 11. And gaze at verses 10 and 11. And continue to look at verses 10 and 11. And spend your life... Looking at verses 10 and 11. I, had, I heard a false teacher one time said, I've heard the, we've heard the gospel, now we need to know how to live. Listen, the gospel is how we live. 
We continue with verses 10 and 11. We continue with the gospel. We continue to go to the cross. We continue to gaze into this love of God. Verses 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice that he says in verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. So that the picture here of the love with which we are to love one another is a picture of God's choosing, God's volition, God's will, God setting upon us before the foundation of this world this love that would result in His Son being sent into this dark world amongst a rebellious and sinful and wicked and hate-filled people in order to save sinners. Why did He do what He did? Why did He show His love this way? Verse 9 says, so that we might live through Him. God initiated this love. He's eternal. God does not change this love. He's immutable. Have you ever looked at your life and you're like, I'm so flaky. (laughs) God's not like that. I think it was Paul Washer that said, God's not like us only better. God's not like us at all. This love is initiated by God. It's unchanging. He's immutable. He does not change His mind. He doesn't waver. God's love doesn't ebb and flow. On your worst day, God's love doesn't ebb and flow. On your best day, God's love doesn't ebb and flow. He doesn't change His mind. He doesn't revoke His love. Once He has set His love upon someone, that love is set. And so Christ comes into this dark world, not a son of royalty, but a son of peasants, in order to ultimately go to the cross and demonstrate the love of God by becoming the propitiation for our sins. If you are here today and you are a Christian, then Christ came into this world to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross of Christ was not a failure of plan A. The cross of Christ was not even plan B. The cross of Christ was the very purpose of God from before the foundation of the world. To show His glory, to show His love by ransoming by the blood of Christ a people for His own possession who will for all eternity rejoice in Him and glorify Him. 
This word propitiation, it's a sacrifice, it's an offering that turns away the wrath of God. For those who leave this life without Christ, they will for all eternity come under the wrath and condemnation and judgment of God. You've heard it said that hell is just a separation from God. But His judgment is absolutely there. God is judging those who will be in hell and He will judge them for all eternity. But for those for whom Christ has become the propitiation for their sins, that wrath of God has been turned away. Not only has His wrath been turned away, but His eternal favor is set upon you. This is the love of God. You deserve none of it. You did nothing to merit any of it. You did nothing to gain it. You do nothing to maintain it. You do nothing to increase it. You do nothing to deserve it. You only brought to the table sin. Let me read something to you that I've, I've read in a few sermons in the past. There's a copy of a book called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent over on the table if you would like to buy it. If you do, do not have it, I would encourage you to buy it. This is a little bit lengthy. But Christians never get tired of hearing what God has done for them. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of His hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of His perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of His ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from Him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from His loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to Him and to His goodness. My life in every way is His and will continue to be utterly dependent upon Him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And He has created me with the intention that I might glorify Him by finding my soul's delight in Him and by living in joyful obedience to Him in all of my ways. Yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I have rebelled against Him and have actually sought to exalt myself above Him going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of His terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am also 
utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, He did it all. Sending His own Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that He was willing to suffer the loss of His Son, and even more amazingly, He was willing to allow His Son to suffer the loss of Him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that He was willing to lay down His life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised Him from the dead, thereby announcing that His death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ to His own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on Him by faith. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me of all my sins, past, present, and future. He made me His child, adopting me into His family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again. For sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have a peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed His future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus, who bore it upon Himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now has... Listen. Only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me, and this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials. Because I am a justified one, He subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as He graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in His heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me, and He longs for me to repent and confess my sins to Him so that He might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in His heart all along. God does not require my confession before He desires to forgive me. In His heart, He already has forgiven me. And when I come to Him to confess my sins to Him, He runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of my confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins, and He is grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I am not receiving the fullness of His love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but He does so because He is for me 
And He loves me and He disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this. Even on my best day. But this is my salvation. And herein I stand. This is the love of God. This is the gospel of Christ. And I would remiss, be remiss this morning if I didn't say, is that your testimony? I, I didn't ask if you were doing more good than bad. I didn't ask if you find your way into church on a regular basis. I didn't ask if you were a Republican or a Democrat. I didn't ask if you were homeschooled or public schooled. I didn't ask if you have the right kind of friends or if you stay away from the wrong TV shows or any of that. I asked, is that your testimony that the love of God has been shown to you by Him sending His Son to go in your place and to bear His wrath in your place so that even though you are terrifically sinful, you could be saved? If that's not your testimony, I would just say, for what do you wait? This is the demonstration of God's love for His people. His chosen people. And you could say, well, how do I know if I'm one of God's chosen people? What if I decide I want to I repent and, and believe the gospel, but I don't know if He's chosen me or not? Let me tell you a secret that's really important to know. If you repent and believe the gospel and follow Christ, that is the most powerful demonstration that He has in fact chosen you. This is the love of God displayed towards sinners, initiated by Him, maintained by Him. It does not ebb and flow. It is not dependent on our loveliness. It is dependent on His character. Therefore. Therefore. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought love one another. If as an act of God's will and His sovereign grace and His love, He has saved us, He has transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, He has adopted us, He has called us from death to life, those who were by nature objects of wrath, if He has loved us that way, despite our unloveliness, despite our rudeness towards Him and our rebellion towards Him, it follows that we would love one another. So here's where the rubber meets the road. John's call for us to love one another as an outworking of the love God has shown us 
is not a call for us to love one another as the world does love. It is a call for us to love one another as an act of our will. To choose to love one another. Not based on our loveliness. Not based on all that we have in common. Necessarily, other than our faith in Christ. Not based on how much we like each other. But based on the fact that we belong to Christ. Beloved, if God has loved us this way, let us love one another. Let me make a few points of application and then we'll be done. Now that we can see how this all fits together, I struggled with this for years. Now that we can see that this love is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. What does Galatians 5 say? But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now that we see that this love is to not be based on our loveliness toward one another, or our ability to fulfill some need in one another, or our need for more joy from one another, but this Love for one another is to be based on the love that God has shown us in Christ. Consider these exhortations to love one another. Just a few things before we close. Let me encourage you that this is a love of the will. That, as we said earlier, pursues the benefit of others. A self giving love that pursues the benefit of others. So I just ask you this morning a fairly straightforward question. Are you pursuing the spiritual benefit of other people? Are you walking alongside other believers in Christ? Are you encouraging them to walk more closely with Him? Are you able to share truthfully and humbly what the Lord is teaching you currently? Are you willing to share with them how you've struggled with your and in your faith? Secondly, This is a love that seeks not just those who are lovely to us, but all of those who belong to Christ. Do you have a small group of people with with which you have to do on a weekly basis at church, or do you go to those who are maybe less desirable? I will tell you something I have noticed since coming to Rockport, and I will tell you who's at fault. It can be fairly difficult to break into the group at Rockport. It can be kind of hard to get in. There's definitely definitely a little bit of a 
clicky feel sometimes. Now, I will say that on the other side of that, I'm a pretty introverted person and I don't tend to make much of an effort. So I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm just saying there's a little bit of that that goes on. I would encourage you as individuals and as a congregation to seek to get rid of that. Just do what you can do on your own. I know that there are people who feel like they have never quite belonged. See what you can do about that. Thirdly, this love that we are called to love with is not a love to be ruled by our emotions and it does not cast off those who have offended us. Rather, this kind of love will be marked by humbly forgiving those who have sinned against us. It is easy especially when you have a large group of people, to simply cast off or cast to the side those who have offended you, those who have, quite frankly, sinned against you. It's easy to just move on to other relationships. It's easy, furthermore, to kind of wallow in bitterness and anger toward those people. This love about which John speaks here is a love that doesn't deny that people will hurt you or be be rude or unkind. It is a love that will be marked by your humble willingness to forgive one another. One of the clearest marks of this love will be forgiveness. Forgiveness is critical for God's people. One of the blights on America's churches is that forgiveness is not something we're willing to do. This kind of love will be marked by humble forgiveness. And that's hard. And that's a work of God's Spirit. And I would encourage you today that if you're sitting here and there's somebody in this room or even just another brother or sister outside of this room with which you are hanging on to that bitterness, that anger, that hatred, I want to encourage you to pray about that and repent of it. Lastly, this love about which John is talking here is a love that will confront sin when necessary. I've had some hard situations where people have sat down with me and said, brother, you're in sin. What you're doing is wrong. And yet if we love one another this way, we would be willing to do that. Not in pride, not to beat somebody down, not to feel superior or better or anything like that, because, but because we have a desire to give of ourselves for the benefit of those people. 
Are we willing to have that kind of love? So this is a, a challenging thing. This is something we would need to pray about. This is something we would need, obviously, the Spirit to be at work in us. Are you willing to pray about that? Let's turn and finish to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. My daughter's getting married next Saturday. And often at weddings, a text that is the go-to text is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. But what's a better way of understanding this text is that this is, the, this is how the love of God worked out by the Holy Spirit will manifest itself in our lives. Just look into the mirror of God's Word this morning and may the Spirit deal with us as is necessary. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just be at work in us according to what the need is for those who would sit in this room and they have not trusted in Christ as the only one who can save them. I pray that 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 reading and that verse that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins would keep them up at night and would haunt them until they come to Christ. I pray that you would help us to be faithful in the teaching of our children about you. Help us to not turn the gospel into a list of do's and don'ts and to make Pharisees out of our children. But help us to help them see that they are sinful just like their parents. They are in need of Christ. And I pray that you would save the children of our homes. I pray for those in this room who are Christians. Lord, it is difficult at times to live out this kind of love when there are people who have hurt us. There are people who have been rude to us, who've said unkind things, done unkind things. Help us by your Holy Spirit's power to live out this kind of love. We will certainly fail. Forgive us where we fail, but help us to age well. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.